Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Dr. Adrian Harrison. Dr. Harrison is a fellow and consulting historian with Battlefield Leadership. She is a graduate of West Point and Rutgers University and served for 12 years in the United States Army. She is here to discuss her latest book, A Powerful Mind, The Self-Education of George Washington. You'll hear more about her personal connection to Washington and how Washington was able to successfully educate himself despite little formal schooling. And now, Drs. Harrison and Bradburn. Hello, welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn. This is Conversations at the Washington Library. I'm delighted to be here today with Adrian Harrison, Dr. Adrian Harrison, also Dr. Major Adrian Harrison, who uh, served for 12 years as commission officer in the U.S. Army in addition to earning her Ph.D. And at Rutgers? At Rutgers, yes. Uh, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'm delighted you're here. Uh, Adrian Harrison has just produced uh, a great new book called A Powerful Mind, The Self-Education of George Washington. Uh, and so let's talk a little bit about uh, that project. Okay. Well, uh, first, I would, uh, I'll say that this was a very personal project. Um, I mean, I think that's something that you know, every author, every historian that spends a long time in archives feels very attached to their work. Uh, but for me, I felt a very personal connection to Washington that goes back a long time. I've always been a fan ever since I was a child. Um, but for me, really, the significance of what Washington did, the, the scale of his achievements and the unlikeliness of them uh, really hit me when I was uh, a 23-year-old second lieutenant on my first uh, deployment to Iraq in 2003. Um, I was in the middle of Baghdad, and uh, you know, I had the lives of, I was a truck platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne Division, and I had the lives of 27 soldiers under my uh, charge, uh, along with the lives of all the soldiers that we transported in the back of our trucks. And uh, you know, I was after several missions. We, and you're there for a while. You need the mental escape. You need something to do to kind of reestablish a little bit of normalcy, and uh, so that you can kind of get through the very long, almost like groundhog days and nights when mm. everything is the same, and your stress level is always very high. And uh, and for me, thanks to my family and friends uh, back home, they sent me a lot of books to read. Um, uh, I don't know. I always had the interest in history, uh, even after I graduated from and put my college days behind me. Um, but uh, they sent me a lot of history books, and, and my old advisor at West Point as an undergrad sent me all the latest books that were being published about Washington. So who his, was that? Who was your old uh, advisor? My old advisor was uh, Rob McDonald. Sure. Um, I believe he's actually spoken here before, yes, um, editor yeah. of Sons of the Father, mm -hmm. uh, and his new book on Jefferson's coming out soon. Well, it's appropriate that he's an editor of a book about mentorship, and he, you identify him as uh, one of your mentors. Absolutely. And uh, so he was really the, the guy who kept Washington's example before me. Um, um, even after I was, you know, no longer a student, and uh, and after you know a few missions that were that were particularly challenging, uh, just the idea popped into my head one night um, after we were back and you know kind of had gone through our um, you know after action review process and all that of how did Washington do this? 
Yeah. You know, and by this, I mean the experience of leading soldiers in combat when you have very little, almost no professional experience. Yeah. Uh, and so I began to think about that and thought about the, how Washington and I were not all together all that different. Uh, when we first took command of soldiers. I mean, I was a little older than he was. Uh, he was 22 when he uh, first led a mission and uh, with his, his commission as a major, he did all right for himself. I mean, starting out as a major at, you know, 22 years old is a pretty good deal. Uh, you gotta know the right people. <laughs> and he definitely did know the right people. Yeah. Uh, and that's all he knew was the right people. He had nothing to prepare him for this. And, you know, I was nervous in my, uh, you know, leadership experience because I had no professional background uh, to speak of at as of yet, um, all but two of my soldiers had, were older than me and had been in the army longer than I had. Uh, and so I was thinking about Washington, like, how did he do this? Because I had the benefit of four years of West Point under my belt. So right. I had been taught in extensive detail the, the fundamentals of leadership. And he had nothing aside from, you know, he took some fencing lessons. Literally, that was it. Um, and somehow, you know, even though he bungled his first attempt very badly. Well, I hope you did better uh, than he did. Well, I did do better than he did. Uh, you know, I probably wouldn't be yeah. sitting here. You don't have to not. surrender on your first major mission. Yeah. You know, um, so, and I didn't start any wars. The, the war was already going on when I got there. Um, but, uh, you, you know. you got to be in the right place at the right time. It you is, know, you know, there is that. Don't feel bad. You might get a chance. Um, so, you know, I thought about that. It was just kind of this question that had rattled around in the back of my mind for the next few years uh, while I was still serving in the active army, two more combat deployments. And then I had the chance to go to graduate school in preparation for going back to West Point to be on the faculty. And so this was my chance to really delve into Washington again. And um, when I was, uh, you know, going to sit down with my advisor and pitch my idea, uh, for for doing a study about Washington and how he did it uh, was kind of my very rudimentary pitch. Hey, you're, so you're thinking in the context of Washington, the military leader, how does he learn? Yeah, how, how does he learn how to do it? How does he translate military success into political success? Because it was another thing he wasn't prepared for. Uh, even though he served in many political offices over his uh, long public life, he wasn't ever qualified for the offices that he held. Um, so I pitched this idea to my advisor, and he hated it. Mm. Hated it on site. He's like, there is nothing new to say about Washington. Go back and come back to me with something else. And so, you know, I was deflated. This is like I've been gearing up for this for years. Yeah, um, this is a very personal thing. This is a personal well. thing for me. I, you know, I tried to pitch the personal connection. He wasn't, he wasn't buying it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I w went back to the drawing board and I was thinking about different ideas, but I didn't let this, this one question go. And uh, it was in a different grad school course um, about uh, the history of early modern Europe that I was introduced to the history of reading as a subfield. Right. And, uh, yes, the and history of the book. The history, history of the reading. book and, and um, you know, kind of the, the, the context of reading in, um, in the early modern world. And I read this book by a guy named Kevin Sharp uh, who wrote Reading Revolutions. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he put forth this argument that all reading is politicized right. and it's specific to moments and places. And so, you know, I thought about that and I thought about Washington and the fact that really nobody had touched this idea of Washington ever doing any sort of reading. It's very understudied, absolutely. <laughs> I think you, you showed that quite well. Uh, the notion of reading as, as political, as performative, I mm -hmm. think is a big part of it. That Sharp is doing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, Sharp's uh, focuses on a guy named Sir William Drake who really learns how to be a political operative 
um, and an explosive time in, in English political history mm-hmm. through reading books and through reading, you know, books that, that don't immediately jump out at you as being a how-to guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he reads, he reflects, he discusses reading with his yeah. contemporaries, and it becomes a real passion for him. Um, so somewhere in your mind in this question, this teasing question about why, how was Washington able to do this, you had been thinking about reading, mm-hmm. and that was that was one of your sort of hypotheses that you were ready to to get at, but then this book sort of opened your 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 mind to a different way to approach the question. Yeah, but I mean the re- the idea of reading had always had kind of been in the background because Washington didn't have real a whole lot of formal schooling beyond you know really today what would be kind of a elementary school maybe junior high school level, mm-hmm. um, and somehow he had to successfully lead the founding fathers. Like he wasn't just one of them; he led them. Um, and so how did he, you know, negotiate leading men like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, these men that were of towering intellects? Well, Jefferson and Adams would say that Washington was uh, not, not much of a reader. No, they wouldn't. I mean, Adams, in fact, dismisses, uh, you know, said that Washington's no, uh, he's no intellectual, um, and that's not even in question. Uh, Jefferson actually said he, said his, he was uh, illiterate. Didn't he was illiterate. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think you know Adams was a little bitter at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but and Jefferson goes on to say that uh, you know Washington had a had a, a mind that was great and powerful, but not of the first order. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a very snotty way of saying that he wasn't all that bright. But I, um, but I took that you, you call the book a powerful mind. So. Yeah, I played on Jefferson's words yeah. a little bit yeah. um, deliberately. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this idea that somehow he had to get that knowledge that was requisite to be able to, you know, lead, coalesce these men, get them together, get them all on the same page. He he didn't say a lot in, you know, certainly when he was president of the Constitutional Convention. He doesn't like to give public speeches. Um, he's never comfortable with political power, but still he has to be able to make decisions mm-hmm. and put them into effect. So he had to do something beyond just sitting there looking good on a horse. Um, you know, which is what a lot of people just kind of assume. We don't. We tend to not look past the image, and there had to be something going on behind the scenes. Um, and All so, right, so good. So reading. pull back the veil a little bit. How does one go about trying to get into the mind of this man of action? So I started by looking at Washington's library itself. Um, I looked at. I, I worked backwards from the final inventory that was made of Washington's books in 1799 on, upon his death, part of the estate's entire inventory, yeah. and uh, there's over 900 different titles in it. Um, and so it's like, okay, 900 titles. More than that, it's, there's what 1,200 titles. 1,200 volumes. Volumes, yeah. yes. Uh, but I, you know. I had to memorize this when we first <laughs> opened the library, and I was asked by Chuck Todd, "How many books did Washington have?" Like, yes. Yeah, like, so was it 900 or 1,200 yeah. or what, something like that? So yeah, yeah the 1,200 in includes the maps yeah. and all those other kind of well, loose yeah, well, and pamphlets and pamphlets that are kind of in one volume. You'll have yeah, you'll have separate pamphlets. So lots of titles in Oh, volumes. yeah, those so, bounds. So less volumes than titles. 900 <laughs> volumes. Yeah. Yes. Anyway. So of the 900 volumes, you know, how do you approach? That's a lot. So how do you approach what did he read uh, of all of that? Because mm-hmm. when you think about it, we all have, if you look at your own personal bookshelf, whether it's a, a real bookshelf or if you have, you know, a, an iPad or a, a Nook or a Kindle and you have your virtual shelf, we all have things that we have never read. Do you read on the Kindle or do you read regular books? No, I read regular books. I don't like. I mean, I, I have an iPad and I do have books on. It, I just don't like it. Yeah, we all have books that we were given. We were given, or we buy them thinking, "Hey, that looks interesting." We just never get around to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the same is probably true for Washington. I mean, the guy was certainly busy. Yeah. You know, um, so I, I approached it by trying to narrow down first what's easy to rule out. 
So he was given a lot of books. And that's an easy, you know, those are suspect right from the beginning, right? Just knowing that we ourselves are all given things and we never quite get around to reading them. And sometimes because we don't have time or maybe we just don't, we're not interested. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at the gifted books first. I noticed a lot of them are in foreign languages. Mm-hmm. Washington couldn't read, write, speak, or understand any language other than English. So easy, rule those out. Well, but to, to what extent then do you do the books he's got in foreign languages, but also in English? I think of like Castle Lux. He's got mm. Castle Lux's travels in French and also in English. He's got Don Quixote, of course, in Spanish and also in English. Yes, of course. So, but of course, he, you know, and he was gifted the French Castle Lux and the Spanish Don Quixote. So, well, when I say that I ruled out the foreign language books, I'm going to talk about the versions that were actually printed in the foreign language. Right. The ones like Don Quixote, he goes out and he actually gets that. Yep. you know, on his own mm-hmm. um, because he realizes that he's trapped in a conversation talking about it and mm-hmm. hasn't read mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if he made the opera, if he took the the time to go chase down a translation or if he was mm-hmm. given a translation, I looked at that yeah. much more, um, you know, with a much more open mind that he might have actually yeah. read there's this. There's only a few of them. Yeah, there's yeah. a handful, really. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, you rule out the ones that are printed in foreign languages. Then I looked at the ones that had actual markings of, o- of ownership in them. Because, again, when you look at the estate inventory in 1799, that's everything that Washington owned in the entire house. So that's counting Martha Washington's books. Uh, you know, there were lots of relatives that they had that were either living here permanently or they were on extended stays. Uh, so there are things in that catalog that belong to Bushrod Washington uh, or Nellie Custis, uh, and, you know, among others. So, you know, okay, let's parse those out. So, like, the women's readers, okay, that's... Probably not his. What? Come on. George Washington. You love that stuff. I'm just going to assume that he didn't really. Maybe he had a thumb through, but, you know, he didn't really read them. Um, So, you know, kind of using that process of elimination to, you know, if it had any obvious markings belonged to somebody else, that was easier to kind of make a judgment call that he he did read it or he didn't. Um, And then, you know, it started to get harder from there. So I looked for other marks of ownership. So, um, you know, for the there's 397 volumes that either have Washington's signature, book plate or both. Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that, like when you and you look at his actual signatures on the title page, they're meticulous. You know, there's not an ink, there's not an ink blot. There's no smudges. The book plates are exactly centered. Like time and attention went into this. There was a care that went into this book ownership. Mm. And if he took the time to do that, and and he was putting his mark as opposed to his wife's or you know his stepchildren or somebody else's mark on it, this was clearly something that he valued. Yeah. So there's an assumption you can make there. The book plate the story is an interesting one. Do you pursue that at all? His design of it and why he got it. And- and all that sort of thing? So it's not something that I explored in the book um, specifically uh, because it's, it gets a little bit tricky to, tra- to trace out exactly where he's getting all of his ideas from and why he felt so strong. I mean, you know, coat of arms is something that's important to him. Um, you know, he wants to establish the, you know, the mm-hmm. legitimacy and the um, uh, kind of the, the splendor of his family line. Yeah. Um, and, you know, book plates were certainly something that was that was popular. Um, I was actually more interested in figuring out which ones were the what they called, you know, the spurious ones, the ones that right. were kind of yes. the yeah. recreations, because that was something that affected the book sales yeah. when the library was broken up over time. Uh, yeah, Washington was the earliest forged person. And you had these. Uh, oh, yeah. Things. Restrikes of his book plate <laughs> and, and the uh, fake signatures fake and signatures oh yeah. and all that and um, the antiquarian question about the book plate to me has always kind of been, you know he uh, he changes the Griffin of War from the from the uh, the 
the coat of arms to the double piece. He, mm -hmm. he puts that on the book plate. And, um, but yet he still orders other coats of arms with the Griffin of War. Of course, he puts the double piece on top of the, the roof of the mansion house as a veteran yourself. I mm. imagine, you know, he's, he's no longer that young man who was uh, enthralled by the whistle of bullets. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, right, uh, the, right. The double piece <laughs> does become more of a symbol for him. Mm -hmm. So I always struck, that always struck me uh, in a powerful way about the kind of maturing George Washington. But I don't really know if we know anything about that. I mean, we just know what the design is. Yeah, we know what the design is. And, and so, I mean, it is interesting. And I think what it speaks to, um, just on the surface, is what uh, lengths Washington was going to to put into his self-presentation mm. and the idea of how, what people would think about him, especially after he was gone. I mean, this was something that legacy was important to him. He, like all the rest of the founders, knew that everything that they ever touched was going to be scrutinized by yeah. you know, historians for forever. And so he was very interested in the idea of shaping the way that people saw him. And in fact, with the library, that's something that he does after his final retirement from office in uh, mm. 1796. He leaves office, he comes back here to Mount Vernon, and he drew up plans for building a separate building from the mansion that was going to house not only his books, but his papers. And he was asking um, Timothy Pickering and, and some others from the kind of the, the throwbacks from his second cabinet that were still serving the Adams administration to send him copies of all uh, mm -hmm. acts of legislation, uh, court decisions, anything having to do with Congress and the military, because he was trying to get the record, set it straight. He always thought he was going to die any minute, so he was trying to really exert control over how people would see him. So it's telling when you look at that library and you look at the, or the plans for that library and the 1799 inventory of what he had, uh, of what, what's there, number one, is, in, is of interest, but also what's not there. Yeah. So, like, we know that Washington was very thin-skinned and very afraid of criticism. Well, that's um, your interpretation. Oh, I mean. <laughs> I mean, I think you're right. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean. <laughs> yes, I think we know that. I think we know that. Yeah. Uh, by way, I mean, like, historians have, have, you know, routinely have said that, and I think there's enough evidence to, to support it. Um, and so, like, you won't find, for all of his keeping of newspapers and printed sermons and all of these things that, uh, you know, refer back to his administration's policies while in office, what you don't find are copies of Philip Furneaux's newspaper or yeah. Benjamin Franklin mm -hmm. Bache's, mm -hmm. um, the, the Aurora. You don't find them in there. Um, because can they sign were, them to the fire every time uh, I think them. from from there's anecdotal evidence to support no direct evidence, but anecdotal evidence to support the idea that Martha Washington burned them, uh, um, that she couldn't bear him. But, but we know he read him though, because I think there's even an anecdote of like in the last month of his life, him ranting and raving about something he's read that Madison had written in the newspaper. Oh yeah, no, so he, he, he had would, this stuff around. Well, yeah. like for no, especially would send several copies right. to the presidential well, and, mansion and every day. That, exactly. <laughs> um, but Martha That's was right. apparently doing her best to kind of scarf them all up and burn them because yeah. uh, she didn't she didn't she couldn't bear the idea of him reading it and, and mm. reacting uh, and having it eat at him you know mm. apparently the way that it was mm. uh, so you know he was he was shaping the record by not including uh, or maybe she was helping him out shape the record by not including certain things that he thought were yeah. I mean, that's unfair. a really good question as to what Martha did after his death or mm -hmm. didn't do in terms of I mean obviously we don't have a correspondence between them. No. I mean, what else don't we have? Yeah. You know, the, and I never, it never occurred to me to think about the, you know, the newspapers and, you know, items like that. Mm -hmm. And you do, re you do recognize there's, there's not a lot of newspapers and, you know, left. Um, okay. So, well, let, let's take, let's attack the book here a little bit. Uh, you, you do something brilliant, I think, which is to look at 
uh, chronologically, George Washington, here, here you have a man who's self-educated, doesn't have the classical education that he may or may not have been promised um, or may have been expecting. But his library is a great way to look at his education because he acquires books mm -hmm. throughout the course of his life. And so, and so you look at it sort of thematically. So here he is as a young man. He's a surveyor. He's a military officer. What are the things that he's, he's acquiring? So, I mean, during the, that early kind of formative period, you see him borrowing a few books. He didn't have much money uh, to, uh, to start buying things on his own. Uh, aside from his first ever purchase was uh, a panegyric. Uh, it was kind of a printed eulogy uh, for the, the late Duke of Schomburg or Schoenberg. You see it spelled two different ways. Um, but yeah, he had um, a dog named Schomburg as well. He did. He, and and mm. if you if you read this thing, this this eulogy, uh, it describes this uh, this individual who was um, a, a Huguenot who was uh, he went on to military some military fame. Uh, not really the world's most famous name. You know, we don't really talk about Frederick Duke of Schomburg now. Uh, but when you read this eulogy and you look at the qualities that he was supposedly had about virtue and honor and, uh, you know, kind of the, this leader of character, physical prowess, all of these things can also be applied to Washington. Washington buys this when he's about 14 years old. Uh, and, uh, and he, you know, he reads this and it it's, appears to be something that he modeled himself after pretty closely. Uh, this is about the same time that he copied out all the rules of civility. Mm -hmm. um, that is kind of what people remember about his education, mm -hmm. that he's copying this antiquated rule book, um, kind of trying to forge himself into the, uh, the individual he wanted to be. Um, so, I mean, he, he reads that. He reads when he, when he starts off in the Virginia Regiment, he, got, he has one of his mentors, um, Colonel Fairfax, who is recommending that he reads Caesar's commentaries. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and he benefits, I think, from um, when his service in the Seven Years' War and being on a member of Braddock's staff uh, with, the, with the regular British Army. He's exposed to that world for the first time. At this point, the British Army was going through uh, a military, a professionalism rena renaissance, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. And reading was something that officers did. It was expected of them that not only when they were uh, doing their training as cadets or very young commissioned subalterns, uh, but as officers, they were expected to have this lifelong self-directed study. Mm -hmm. And there were reading groups and there were lists that were passed around. Um, and you can go back and you can trace a lot of these different officers that were Washington's people. Years, and then his adversaries later, you know, fast forward a few decades in the revolution. Yeah. He would have been, if he didn't read all the things he that they were, he would have been exposed to the fact that they were doing this. Yeah, and they, yeah, that's, they traveled with books, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and you think of 18th century warfare, they, they have their equipage and they have their books with them. I mean, it's an interesting world. Yeah, they didn't travel, um, you know, no. they didn't travel light <laughs> <laughs> or practically yeah. uh, at that time. I mean, I, I think, though, that um, we have to have, be a little bit cautious about that period. Washington doesn't really have the time to do a lot of that reading. Um, he was also near death at one point, you know, having dysentery. He was back here at Mount Vernon kind of mm -hmm. convalescing. So uh, for a portion of that, we, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that he was really studying that hard. Mm -hmm. uh, but certainly he was aware of these conversations. And it's something that in 1755, he uh, told his subordinate officers, you know, having no example to learn from, let us read. Yeah, that's a great uh, moment uh, that you highlight there. I mean, it's a time when uh, there had just been a court-martial and Washington is speaking to the officers. He says uh, it takes more than the title to make the officer. Mm -hmm. 
and and what he's meaning is that you have to you have to do the duties you have to learn the responsibilities of an officer mm -hmm. in addition to having the title mm -hmm. and, and so it does that it's funny because it does go in kind of a different direction than you think it is when he starts emphasizing read mm -hmm. you know that wasn't like the first yeah. thing you think he's going go, <laughs> to go for there but that's a that's a great moment mm -hmm. he's very young i mean he's 24 oh, 20, yeah. 25 mm -hmm. 23 something Mm -hmm. In that neighborhood when yeah. he's telling us. So, uh, so, yeah, I mean, so he's doing all of these things during the Seven Years' War. But then something happens at the end of that war when his, you know, he was always had it in his mind at this point in his life, in his early 20s, that he was going to gain a commission as a regular officer in the British Army. Mm -hmm. And that dream is finally crushed. Mm -hmm. Uh, when he has his encounter that he had been seeking for months, begging to go see Lord Loudon uh, in Philadelphia John for months. Campbell, um, with Scott. Yep. Yeah. Who greeted him with all of the warmth of an aristocrat, meeting <laughs> someone who doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, and, you know, all of Washington, all what he brought to the table thinking he was going to wow him with this, you know, hard-earned experience, this first-hand experience of how to, you know, fight this war on the frontier. It's very different from mm -hmm. European war. Like, he's a resource that Loudon should appreciate. Loudon brushes him off mm -hmm. and says, like, you haven't, you don't, you haven't done anything of, of which I should pay attention to. You haven't read all the proper books. Um, you haven't, you don't have any qualifications at all. Like, I'm, uh, get out. Mm -hmm. um, and at that point, I think Washington knows that that dream is, it's done. It's done. Let it go. And so he resigns his commission uh, not too long after that. I mean, there's the famous quote in, in his response to, to the experience with Loudon. He writes to Dinwiddie and he says, why is it that Americans are going to be treated mm. different just because they're American or something? Why is it we don't have the same rights as British subjects even though we're American or something like that? Yeah, so yeah. he's using this language that obviously hindsight says, wow. Wow, it's revolutionary. I mean, that's revolutionary, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, for, for him, that's something in the book that I call his Americanizing moment. Yeah. You know, he is, he is not so enamored with being a British a British subject in America anymore. That's how they all colonists had really identified themselves is that they were British subjects who you know were happened to not live in Britain. They lived in in America, but they were all on the same level. And you know that was all brought crashing to earth yeah. for Washington, and he doesn't turn back. So his reading interests change after that. Mm. He puts the military behind him. He figures he's done with that, and he turns. You know, he marries uh, Martha, and then he becomes not only a, the, you know the planter here at Mount Vernon, but he inherits um, you know the the responsibility of administering the Custis estates yeah. for Martha and for her children. Mm. And so he's got a he has to learn a lot, not just about agriculture, which is something he would always a great passion for him. But he has to know a lot about the law, about right. inheritance, uh, about how to administer these things. And he actually goes through, as part of his duties as an executor, he goes through the Custis Library um, mm -hmm. that belonged to Daniel Park Custis, Martha's first husband. And he parses out what he wants for himself and what he's putting aside for his stepson's education, mm -hmm. uh, and taking advantage of the low appraisal value. Uh, because books were expensive, they were luxury items. Mm -hmm. So he saw a good deal, and uh, and he grabbed it for himself. So one uh, of the things that uh, a question I have, uh, Washington of course goes on to become a great record keeper in terms of his accounts, in terms mm -hmm. of his uh, his weekly farm reports. I mean, he's got an incredible system that he will develop by the end by the end of this story in terms of his story as a as a farmer. Mm -hmm. Um, are there any books he's reading that are helping him sort of think through how to do that? Or is this something he's going to develop on his own through experience? What do you see in that early period of, like, learning to manage an estate? Is there anything he's, he's reading that, that you can point to? 
I mean, I think in terms of the accounting piece, uh, it's something that he learned more from experience mm-hmm. of of doing it himself for his own farms. But he I mean, he kind of had to learn, you know, by drinking from a fire hose when he when he mm-hmm. got control of the Custis estates right. because he was exposed to different methods of the bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to standardize it and make sense of it and make sense of the debt that they had the experience as, as the officer. Yeah. With expense accounts. All and this stuff. He didn't have the regular mm-hmm. kind of staff mm-hmm. that you would you would have to yeah. deal with all the different commissaries and all the other, you know, things he was doing trying mm-hmm. to keep it going on the frontier. Yeah, but where the re- the reading really comes into place with him economically and what he's doing as a farmer is, you know, he realizes that, you know, tobacco is ruining Virginia. Uh, it's ruining his personal fortunes. It's ruining the colony um, and, and the estates he's responsible for. And so he becomes very interested in the, the late 1750s, early 1760s with getting all the latest agriculture books. He's requesting them specifically by title. So he's clearly talking to people, friends and neighbors probably around from this area where the soil is mostly the same um, to get ideas of uh, where are they getting their information from. And that's where you see he gets uh, Duhamel's husbandry book, mm-hmm. where it's one of the few examples we have of him making marginal notes and really acting like a like a scholar. Mm-hmm. He goes through this book, you know, this French... Um, um, this French translation, um, and he's taking the the foreign measures and he's converting them. He's actually doing the math to convert them to mm. um, you know measures that he weights and measures he would use here. And his diaries, if you put it together with his farm diaries, he's experimenting based on what he's reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was something that you know was obviously interesting for him, but it was also immediate. He was hugely in debt here, yeah. um, trying to you know live with this you know through his marriage. He's now at the top of Virginia society. He's got to keep up with the Joneses. They were spending money like crazy. He's losing money from tobacco. And so there was a real immediate need for him to reverse his financial fortunes. Mm -hmm. So he's among the first. He's not the first, but he's among the first to go away from tobacco here. He goes from uh, plantation to farming uh, grain. And, uh, you know, it's it's not profitable at first, but he sticks with it. And he's, he's researching markets and, you know, how to sell corn and wheat and what else can you do with it. So it's like eventually how we get rye whiskey yeah. being distilled here and things like that. He's very entrepreneurial based on these, um, you know, French and British uh, innovators that are going through the same types of struggles. So you see that in his reading as well as his kind of uh, mm-hmm. the local experience and the, and the correspondence. And yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. So For him, the reading always, whatever he reads is always something that he's going to practically apply. Reading mm-hmm. is immediate for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not something that I'm going to, you know, read this and learn something for a later date that I might, this might come in handy at some point. Like, no, mm-hmm. he's reading for the moment. Yeah. So that model that he gave to his officers, that this is, you're learning how to do things the, the better way, the right way. Mm-hmm. You're innovating. You have to read as you're doing it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. When we talk about you know, lifelong learners and leadership and this notion of being curious and constantly trying to to find the best way of doing things and master your craft or trade. And he seems to be one of those mm-hmm. types that's Absolutely. Uh, trying to get all, all, as much information as he can. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so in the provincial period then, uh, what do we see, I guess, changing in terms of, or what, what in new insights do we get when we think about Washington the Reader when we move to the revolutionary epoch itself, the war and sure, I mean, resistance I, to Britain. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, during this provincial period as a member of the House of Burgesses, he's certainly, um, you know, taking part in or at least observing uh, all the debates that are going on at, you know, into the 1770s mm. as these different colonial taxation acts are being passed by Congress. He is among those who are the first to protest, um, you know, here in Virginia. 
and uh, and that's something that the that his reading is definitely shaping. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can see him uh, purchasing things that and acquiring things that immediately don't seem to be up his alley. Like he buys a lot of books on religious history mm-hmm. uh, and church organization, church history, and that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, why would he? He's not really. I mean, the subject of Washington and religion has been well explored, and still we don't know exactly what he believed. But why the organization bit? Well, you know, at the same at the same time in the 1770s, Virginia was going through kind of a reaction to the Great Awakening, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that the church, the established Church of England here, was uh, kind of seen at, perceived as being in decline, a little bit out of control. There were parish priests that were upset about how much they were getting paid, uh, and whether they were getting paid in tobacco or hard cash, mm-hmm. and which was worth mm-hmm. more or less. The the whole two penny act. Two penny controversy, absolutely, and, uh, major major big deal. It's a big deal, and they petition, yeah. and so this becomes you know a big thing that convulses well, the, he's, the Burgesses. He's also a vestryman. I mean, and he's, he's a, a vestryman. vestryman. He's, he's on the architecture committee for Poet Church that's going to be mm-hmm. built in 1774, mm-hmm. somewhere in there. So, you know, understanding yeah. these things is, is something that's, again, very practical and very immediate for yeah. him. And by taking part in, in all of these debates uh, that are going on in the Burgesses, he's around people like Patrick Henry, who's you know kind of a, a more of a firebrand, and George Mason, his neighbor, um, mm-hmm. you know, not too far away from here. Um, you know, they're helping, you know, in those kind of conversations and the debates, they're helping, you know, put the seeds in his mind, and then the reading that he's doing on the side is helping him formulate his opinions. Mm-hmm. And then he harkens back to his earlier experience with Loudon, realizing, okay, there's nothing that we're ever going to do that's going to make us be British. So do we're you always see him as a different. reluctant revolutionary or not? An early, he's an early breaker. I think early. he's an I think he's an early breaker, but yet he's relu- at the same time he's reluctant for the war that comes with it. No, so there's sort of the method and the means, yes. I guess. So yes. Or the, the end and the means. And, you know. Yeah. He's all for, I think he's he's uh, all for independence um, before a lot of maybe I mean John Adams is probably right up there with him but um, he certainly makes the move intellectually faster than Franklin does mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is something that I talk about um, yeah. but um, but in terms of the actual how do we achieve this independence like let's go to war yeah. he's he's more hesitant about it even though he puts himself forward to serve all right so let's uh, let's leap ahead okay um, uh, T- take me through. Well, take me through the war itself. I guess. Uh, I mean, does he is he reading in the war? Is he rediscovering the military books now, or mm-hmm. are there new things, or is it just the old stuff that he's rereading? I mean, what's he what's he doing? There? No, absolutely. When he knows he's a delegate in the in the Continental Congress, he knows he's about to be nominated for command. He gets uh, he has a couple of different book agents, book buyers mm-hmm. in New York and Philadelphia, and he sends letters to them instructing them to buy everything military that they can find. Um, you know everything. So he he is basically what they get for him are things that are more what today would be called tactical field manuals, mm-hmm. uh, very low level books that are designed for lieutenants and sergeants to read. A new manual and platoon exercise, <laughs> a system of camp discipline, military honors, garrison duty, and other regulations for the land forces. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're really real, fun stuff. Real, real, <laughs> yeah, page turners, all of them. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, but what's striking is that these are written for very low level leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you know here he is. Yeah. He's about Platoon to be. Level, a, yeah. yeah, you know he's a, he's going to be a commanding general. Why is he reading this stuff? Well, I mean his experience. I mean he did build the Virginia Regiment. He rebuilt it mostly himself. Uh, but this is on a whole new level. Yeah. He's got to build a, a an army that can take on the most professional yeah. army in the world, and he doesn't have a whole lot of time to do it. So he's getting his he hands on have everything. An experienced officer corps either. It's no, not like he can depend on them to have no. this stuff. You know, really the only yeah. two that he has that have any sort of experience are Charles Lee and Horatio Gates, who yeah. are. 
not always friendly to him. So, so, uh, so he is yeah, reading I, you know, frantically. It's interesting too, and with you know, so with the dynamic with those two, obviously they go on to become rivals in different mm. ways, controversial ways. Uh, it's not like he would ask them for advice, or would he? I mean, is he confident enough that he would ask these other experienced officers for advice, or is he is he just gonna do his own thing? No, I mean, he, one thing that he, that Washington understood always is that he did have a handicap, an educational handicap, uh, with, with the things that he was trying to do. So he developed a sort of um, a, a way of using what he called his military family, um, his advisors, his top commanders. He would have a council of war, a big, you know, a meeting where he would throw an idea out there mm -hmm. and then say, like, I, I think we should invade Boston and we should cross the Charles River, let's go, and, uh, you know, or across Boston Harbor if we need to, like, right. which way should we go about this? Right. But I want to attack Boston. And he would let them play with this idea. And, 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 and you know, some would argue against him. Some would, would try to figure out how to make it work. But he would gather the kind of the learned opinions and get a sort of a consensus if there was one, and then he would weigh in and make a decision. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something that he that he learns to do, and he's more effective at it as time goes on as a general. Uh, in the beginning, he's really not that good at it, and in, he's not very good at personal command mm -hmm. um, at an army level. New York City teaches him that in 1776. He's never commanded on that scale. It's an incredibly difficult piece of terrain to try to defend, and he and he, he bangles it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so he he that's he eats a little humble pie and he's uh, determined to lead with the uh, informed opinions of those that are that are working for him. How does polit political tracks and pamphlets fit in in the revolutionary uh, fight for him? I mean, it's something that's very important because he's got to sell soldiers on the idea of volunteering mm -hmm. and then staying in. Uh, and it's something that, you know, would you want volunteer for an army where you're not going to get paid, you're not going to be well-supplied or well-fed? I wouldn't. You know? You're the soldier. You <laughs> um, but, you? I mean, you know, recruiting is something, yeah. I mean, it's a very real problem that, you know, the military continue, has always faced, right? Yeah. How do you get people to join? And back then, of course, he had really nothing to offer them. But, of course, you, um, didn't, you didn't have to worry about, with your troops, you didn't have to worry about them getting paid. You didn't have to worry no. about them <laughs> having a kind of housing support. I mean, there were these things were, yeah. were going to happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, no, we, we yeah. faced uh, very different challenges, but yeah. you know, it, but it still is the same fundamental question of, of what, like, you have what to sell them people? on what motivates them. Why should they stay? Why should they join? Why should they stay? And, and, um, and for and for you, the the cause was an important. I mean, he, he used the political cause. He wasn't just talking about material oh, well-being. No. He, for him, it was because I think for him personally, it was about the cause, mm -hmm. um, and it's something that he felt strongly on, uh, strongly enough about to risk his not only his own life, but I mean, he risks his his financial well-being. He's yeah. not getting paid either, um, and you know, he stakes everything, his reputation probably most of all, and so he uses the cause to try to rally people, um, and and it's something that sometimes rings hollow. He has Thomas Paine traveling with him, um, you know, and that's when you know the American crisis is uh, is written with in Washington's camp. He has it read out to his soldiers, uh, and and he's trying to you know hit the right exactly the right note to get them to re-enlist. So that's mm -hmm. something that's very important for him. And you see him uh, collecting copies, not only of Payne's work, uh, but also of these printed sermons, especially in these political tracts. But it's more the sermons that are interesting because mm -hmm. you see that every pulpit in America gets politicized during yeah. the revolution, either for or against. The black regiment. And, um, you know, he, he 
collects these things. I think he thought they were a valuable resource because they were a way that he could get his soldiers to go to weekly services mm -hmm. and they would get, that would help with discipline, give them something to do. Um, and they would also get that message reinforced mm -hmm. in a different way. Interesting. So uh, as a presidential uh, figure, where does, uh, where does the, how, what do the books tell us there? So as president, it's interesting because he learns uh, really during the Confederation period when his fame is at its zenith after the revolution, mm. how to use the power of the printed word uh, to reinforce his own authority or the authority of the government uh, that he's trying to lead. So, um, you know, he's he lends his name and his papers to projects that are about writing the history of the revolution. Mm. Uh, and for the and, and as president, he's using a lot of newspapers um, a lot of printed sermons as a way of in an era before opinion polling mm -hmm. to get to gauge the public's response to what he's doing because he understands that he's got to set the tone for uh, for uh, for the legitimacy of the presidency and uh, of this new government under the Constitution uh, that he certainly believed in but not everybody else did and he was aware of that uh, but you know also he needed to know how people were gauging what he was doing so he would know what to do next because he was aware of the fact that he was setting the precedent for everybody else who would come after him. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so you know, as the newspapers became, he subscribed to many of them. Um, there were a lot, there were more that was being set up after the revolution ended and the economy kind of righted itself a little bit. Um, and uh, so he subscribed to those, but over time the newspapers became partisan and he was starting to be attacked in them. I mean, Philip Furneaux and Benjamin Franklin Bache were certainly the, the biggest two that were uh, attacking Washington personally, not just his administration. Uh, you know, calling him a deaf old man, uh, criticizing the way he celebrated his birthdays and everything. Mm -hmm. He couldn't stand that. Um, and so, you know, I mean, really, who <laughs> wants to be criticized? Yeah. So you can't really blame him, yeah. uh, especially for things that are personal like that. Yeah, um, I mean, well, this is the, I guess this would come to my challenge to you about this thin-skinned notion. Mm. I mean, uh, is he any more thin-skinned than anybody? I mean, does he really, uh, I mean, do we really, I mean, we have a sense of a man who actually has a lot of uh, control, ultimately, self-control, oh, yeah. and an ability to sort of cut through what's important and try to keep things moving along. I mean, is he really this sort of as thin-skinned as all that? I mean, uh, is any other politician? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, do I think he's that different from any other politician? No. Um, I, I think, you know, who nobody likes to be criticized, whether you're political or not. I think with him, though... But it's like, for instance, he's not as thin-skinned as John Adams, for instance. I oh, mean, no, this well... This is somebody who's really thin-skinned. <laughs> true. Adams right? is on a whole new so level. So on a spectrum... On a spectrum. Founders, he's, he's actually, he's pretty... He, he's closer to the center than John Adams, I'll give you that. <laughs> but, um, but no, I mean, I think that the self-control was all, uh, it was a part of... Of, um, of part of the deliberate self-presentation, but privately yeah. these things would eat at him mm. uh, because you see that in when James Monroe wrote a book criticizing his administration. Mm. Monroe was sent as an ambassador to France, and he's recalled by Washington. He was an awful ambassador. Uh, he was terrible, <laughs> but in Washington recalls him. So to get him back, Monroe writes this book, and it's critical of the whole administration. And Washington, you know, marks this book up, writing insane, crazy. Mm. I never said that. Um, you know, you can see if you look at his handwriting, um, you can see the oh, like the anger and the pen yeah. strokes, like the the the, uh, the penmanship gets heavier, yeah. uh, like he's pressing harder with the quill. Um, I, I think these things did eat at him. That book is at the Houghton Library mm -hmm. at Harvard. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and and so it's you can see that um, 
you know, that was certainly his comments weren't for public consumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's something that bothered him enough that, you know, he read it, he paid attention to it. Mm-hmm. And he never had a relationship with Monroe after that. I mean, yeah. when he tended to have a falling out, you could have disagreements with people. He certainly disagrees with Hamilton, and, and but they can get past it. But certain things that are more personal, he doesn't get past. He doesn't really have a relationship with Thomas Jefferson after Jefferson leaves, uh, you know, office as Secretary of State. Not a, not a very positive one. Yeah. Um, well, you know, he yeah. breaks with Madison, yeah. George Mason. Um, you know, Mason there's, dies eventually. Mason dies eventually. <laughs> but before that, I mean, yeah. you know, he views, I think, personal betrayals or, or you mm-hmm. know, disagreements that, that yeah. turn personal away from the professional are something he doesn't have an yeah. easy time setting aside or getting past. So how does uh, how does his reading help us understand his his uh, changing thinking about slavery? So I mean it's interesting the slavery question uh, and there's been a lot of study devoted to to the idea of Washington and slavery because he's uh, the only founder to emancipate his slaves even though there are still slaves here at Mount Vernon after his death because uh, of the complications of the, the Virginia laws at the time. Well, and even his aren't um, freed until Martha dies. Yeah, and then she the expedited it, yeah. um, you know, just to, to get on with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think for Washington, there's a, there's, always, there's a practical and there's a philosophical approach to slavery. Mm-hmm. Practically, he thought it was a terrible system economically, that it was going to eventually ruin the South. Um, because, you know, you're, you're paying for everything for these people who can, you know, the slaves were, he was always suspicious that slaves were doing things, like mm-hmm. they were breaking tools deliberately, not working hard enough, um, right. you know, they were stealing things from him. Um, so he didn't think it was an economically viable system. But then there's the moral part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, he was shocked as a, as a new commanding general to see that there were free uh, black soldiers in his ranks. And you know, at first he's not in favor of the idea, but then kind of as a first as a military expediency, but then he sees that they're just as capable um, of, of performing as soldiers as their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. I think that starts to change his mind somewhat. Um, and, you know, this is a, it's a slow evolution um, because he was born and raised in, in, with slavery as an institution. It's not something that was just a mm-hmm. you know, flick of the switch. This is wrong. I think it, he had to see that through experience. And then, you know, we see through his reading, he's buying things um, about how to, uh, first of all, how to get away from a slavery system. So he puts a lot of time and effort into studying how you can how he could turn Mount Vernon into uh, tenant farming. And mm-hmm. he explored in, importing tenant farmers from Ireland and England. Um, that didn't really work, but um, but he's playing with the idea. Yeah, the problem is tenant farmers want to own land. If they yeah, come to America, that is pesky. That is a problem. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but you know, but he but he's he's playing with that idea, and he's um, reading these these different plans for emancipating slaves, sending them back to Africa. You know, is that something that's viable or not? Well, the, um, I know he owns a lot of tracks on the slave trade. I don't know beyond that. I mean, the anti-slave trade, Clarkson, and mm-hmm. some of these other. And he binds a number together, yeah. a number of pamphlets mm-hmm. into one volume, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is at the Boston Athenaeum. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, and that's and that's where I saw it. It's um, are these sent to him by Quakers? Are they things he's purchasing? A little bit know? of both. Uh, yeah. A little bit of both. Um, a lot of them were sent to him, but uh, in his correspondence about the tenant farming is where we put the two and two together to see mm. is he really reading this stuff, or again are these just you know gifts from people who are trying to shame the the slaveholding mm-hmm. you know father of a free well, country, him. you know influence him. Yeah. Um, but uh, wh- where you see the connection is he's writing to some of his English agricultural correspondents that mm-hmm. he uh, and, and Tobias Lear, his private secretary here, that he was trying to devise a system to free himself of a system of labor that was now repugnant to him. Right. 
Um, and so a species of property. Yeah, a species of property. Yeah. Um, he wasn't comfortable with the idea anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that's a leap to think that you know he was um, you know thinking of of you know black and white equality of the races. Um, but you know, I, I think he had turned on slavery. He realized it was not something that they should be doing. And you can see he does care because in his will, when he free in the passages about freeing the slaves, it's not just that he emancipates them; it's that he provides for pensions for those that are too old um, yeah. to go out and earn a living. Um, he wants the, the slave children to be educated, even though it's a violation of Virginia law at the time. Um, you know, he he provides for them, and and he requires his executors to keep paying these pensions, which go well into the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's he wanted these people to have a, a fighting chance yeah. at, a, at a, a decent life. So what do you think overall you contribute to our understanding of George Washington or to the founding era uh, with this uh, great new study? I mean, I think what one of the things that, that uh, we come to appreciate is, is the humanity uh, behind what he's doing, right? There's a lot more to him than the, the two-dimensional yeah. um, you know, figure in this painting that's so distant and remote. We see some th- this thing that he does throughout his life that's an active pursuit of trying to accomplish goals. And that's something that anybody who's ever been a student should be able to relate to. Um, it kind of brings him back out of time, back to a person that we can see and we can appreciate in a different way. And I think we understand more of the, the component of how did he do it? What, what part did he play in shaping um, you know, the way that posterity was going to view him? He didn't want everybody to see that he was doing this reading. Um, that was something that he kept very, very hidden because he was afraid of people seeing this defective, his word, defective education. Uh, but, you know, it was something that was necessary and, uh, and was an important factor. So we, we see him, I think, in a different light now. That's so wonderful, uh, Adrian. You're preaching to the choir here at Mount Vernon. We're trying <laughs> to make George Washington human all the time, and he's so inscrutable to some people because the, you know, the marble busts and the statues and the old granny picture on the dollar bill and the <laughs> and the monument that's a you know that's a that stands for immortality and it's, <laughs> there's no human scale to it so uh his reading is definitely a way into his mind and into his life and thank you so much mm-hmm. for uh, producing a wonderful study <laughs> well thank you so much for having me all right we hope you enjoyed this week's discussion The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.